0: Survival shows have been popular for a while now. It started off with Survivor. Do we have any Survivor fans, anybody that loved Survivor back in the day? Then came all the others, Bear Grylls, who loved Bear Grylls. My kids, yeah, my kids still like Bear Grylls. I've had to warn them that some of the things Bear Grylls does, you should not do. Uh, There's just a couple wilderness things that he's like, you can do this. And I'm like, don't, don't do that thing. It usually involves rehydrating yourself. Uh, so then came like "Lone Survivor" and "survivor Man." One of the recent ones is "Outlast," where they drop a bunch of people off and they like have to form teams and try to survive. So all of this is based on the idea of roughing it, right? Surviving in the wilderness. How can you survive? Can you go out into the wilderness with nothing and survive? you ever? Pretend like you might be on that show? <laughs> no. <laughs> Some people are like, no way. No. But what happens? I mean, part of Bear Grylls' thing is like, what do you do if you get in a, in a plane accident and all of a sudden you're the lone survivor? How do you survive? So let's, let's pretend that you are going to be on Survivor Man or you are going to be on Outlast or you are going to be on one of these shows. You're going to be picked up, you're going to be dropped off in the wilderness just yourself and you have to survive. Let's say you can take one backpack full of stuff. So you've got one backpack you can take. You're going to have to pack it. You have an opportunity to talk to Bear grills, maybe some other experts, maybe some Navy SEALs, other survival experts. And so they're all giving you advice on what to pack. You've got your bag packed. You're ready to go. And then, one of your best friends shows up. Now let's just pretend, I'm not saying this is your best friend, but let's just pretend your best friend loves to sit on the couch and play video games. And that's all they do. They don't like to go outside, they've never even slept outside one time, they don't like to rough it, they don't go camping, that's just not their thing. But your best friend begins to give you advice and begins to go through everything Bear Grylls gave you and says, you know, Bear Grylls, he kind of knows his stuff, but really it's just kind of a show for entertainment. You don't want Bear Grylls advice. Take my advice. And so your best friend starts to unpack your suitcase or your backpack and starts to put in all of these other things. And everything he tells you to pack, you have to unpack something the expert told you to put in. Who do you listen to? Do you listen to that expert? Or for the sake of maybe saving your relationship, do you listen to your best friend? When it comes to a relationship with God, there are a plethora of man-made ideas a plethora of philosophies. There is no shortage of religions. Everywhere you go, someone is ready to tell you all about God. Someone is ready to tell you who he is or maybe who he is not, what he likes and what he dislikes. Some people even want to try to convince you that he doesn't exist at all. Everywhere you go, there are people telling you how to have a relationship with God. And yet God himself has spoken on the subject. God has declared himself to us. So why would we look to those who have no relationship with him for advice on how to have a relationship with him? Why not turn to the expert himself? And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our series, By Him, for him, we will pick up in Colossians two verse six, we will read through verse fifteen, therefore, as you have rec- sorry therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the flesh of the body, sorry, the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, over them in him. So he starts this section off with a therefore, and we always want to know what the therefore there is for is, right? So it's, ba- it's, it's this idea of based on or in light of therefore, and based on or in light of what we've already learned throughout chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and it's all about the supremacy of Christ, because Christ is supreme, because Christ is deity, because Christ is the fullness of God, because Christ is God, and because Paul has a desire to see all believers mature or complete in Christ, therefore, based on these things, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So as you received, that means how they were taught. And in fact, he's going he's gonna to couple this up a little bit later with uh, how you were taught. So how were they taught? They were taught by Epaphras, who was taught by Paul. So that makes them third-generation Christians. So they had to check what they were were taught with Scripture, just like the Bereans in Acts 17. So we know that the the Bereans in Acts 17 were taught by Paul, and what did they do? What what made them uh, even make it in the chapter uh, 17 of Acts? They went and they checked all that Paul taught them with Scripture. They went and verified it. That's what the Colossian church also needed to do. That's what we need to do as well. There are a lot of great teachers out there today, but even great teachers get things wrong. And so we always need to be checking, is this verified by scripture? And a couple different ways that we can verify it is we can just check the context, right? So does it make sense in the immediate context? Is what they are telling is what they're teaching on. Does it make sense in the immediate context, within the immediate verses, within the immediate chapters, within the book or the letter? This is so important, and it actually really helps us to understand. For example, in the book of Galatians, throughout the book of Galatians, flesh is synonymous with legalism. So when you read flesh in, in the book of Galatians, it's synonymous with legalism. So then when we get to the works of the flesh, all of a sudden a lot of people will change that over and they'll make it like a sinful desire. But that's actually taking it out of context. In the context, flesh means legalism. So the works of legalism are all these negative things. But if we don't look at the at the specific context right there, we'll actually miss out on that point. So the first thing we want to do is look at how does this make sense in this in this context in the verses and the chapter and the book and then we want to expand that a little bit further and says but, but does this also make sense in the more general context so within the pauline letters how does paul use the word flesh does it always have that connotation does it always mean legalism does he maybe use it in other circumstances and then we would want to check it out even a broader sense. And then we even want to ask, does this make sense within the grand narrative of Scripture? And so this is one of the ways that we check teachings. How does it fit within the the direct context, the immediate context? How does it fit within the larger context? And how does it fit within the grand narrative of Scripture? And we could even use that example of flesh and dive in even further. Knowing that legalism will not and cannot save us. We'll get a little bit more into that next week. But for now, we can know that in the, in the general context of Galatians, flesh equals legalism. In the greater context, we can understand that flesh is also our fleshly desire and legalism and fleshly desire go hand in hand. And in the grand narrative of Scripture, we can see that that cannot save us, but we need to be saved from our flesh, and we need to be saved from legalism. So that's kind of how we can check, check this teaching. But what Paul is emphasizing here is, so as you received Christ Jesus, so as you were taught about Christ Jesus... And assuming that Apophis and Paul were teaching correctly, and we can look and check it with Scripture, so as you receive Him, walk in Him. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, Christ Jesus the Lord, and I want to talk about this because this is the only time you will find this exact phrasing within the Pauline uh, epistles. Now, we'll find like the Lord Christ Jesus, and we'll find different variations, but this is the only time that we find Christ Jesus. The Lord. And I think there's a specific reason why Paul uses this exact phrasing at this exact time. So Christ is an Old Testament title for Messiah. The Jews would recognize this. This was, not, this was pretty typical for Jews to recognize Christ equals Messiah. Jesus is his name. But then, so we've got the title Christ, we've got Jesus the name, and then we've got the title the Lord. Lord simply means master. Pagans would often use this to describe their deities. That their deity was Lord. Their deity was master. So Paul is is actually correcting the pagan idea, and he's saying that Jesus is actually Lord. Jesus is actually master. But it even goes deeper than this. Because when the Old Testament was first translated into Greek, so that would be called the Septuagint, When it was first translated into the Greek, they didn't want to use the term Yahweh. That was considered a sacred term. That's the name of God. You don't say it. You don't write it out. So when they first translated it from Hebrew into Greek, every time that it would say Yahweh, they they translated that as Lord. We still carry on that tradition today. Anytime you read in your Old Testament, Lord with a capital L, that's actually taking the place of the Hebrew term or name for God. So that first started when they first translated the Old Testament into Greek. And so what Paul is doing by making this connection is he's basically saying the Messiah that you know of, that the Jews know of, he is Jesus, and he is also Yahweh. Paul is making this connection, He's essentially declaring the Messiah, Jesus, is God of all, both pagans and Jews. So if we remember the heresy that was occurring in Colossae, the heresy that, yes, Jesus is good. We're so glad you accepted Jesus as your Savior. But if you really want to be holy, if you really want to be saved, if you want to be better than, then you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus all of these extra things. So, just by this title alone, Paul is correcting this heresy. He's saying, No, it's Jesus alone. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is deity. Jesus is Lord of all. There is no Jesus plus. It is Jesus. So, just as you received the Lord Jesus, so walk in him. This is basically him saying so live this out. So because Paul desires to see all mature or complete in Christ, therefore live out how you were taught about Christ. The emphasis here is on living it out, walking what we know about Christ. It's important for us to to recognize that we walk or we live or we act out what we truly believe. We walk out, we live what we really believe. And we can talk a lot about different beliefs, but how we act, our actions really reveal what we truly believe. So we can talk about Jesus being Lord, but when we live in disobedience to Jesus, that's revealing that we don't actually believe Jesus is Lord, but that something else is Lord. And our walk, how we live, our actions, will be influenced by what we are taught and how we check those teachings with scripture. So walk this out. And the first way to walk this out is to understand it and to believe it. When our walk, when our, when our walk doesn't line up with our faith, the first thing we need to do is go back and check, what am I misunderstanding? And do I actually believe what I understand to be true? So next, Paul will give us four participles to describe this walk. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the four participles are rooted, built up, established, and abounding in thanks. The first three go together. Rooted is a past tense and it's passive meaning you have been rooted so when you put your faith and trust in Christ he roots you in him now the way this is described is it's past tense but it's still having impact today it's not like you were rooted and then you were knocked out and you're no longer rooted you were rooted and this is still having effect for you today and then Both built up and established are present tense, and they're also passive. This is important for us to recognize that it's not us that did the rooting, and it's also not us that does the building up and establishing. It is Christ who did the rooting, and it is Christ who does the building and the establishing. We could say it like this, having been rooted and now growing in Christ. So the second you believe, he roots you in him. Then as you submit to scripture, he grows you in him. And he does the rooting, he does the growing. So then what is our job? Well, the fourth participle is the active participle. And it's abounding in thanks. This is the only active one. This is our response to him rooting us, to him growing us. We then abound in thanks. So this is how we are to walk, how we are to live. We live out what we believe. If we look toward Christ and we believe that he has rooted us in him, that no one can take us out of him, that he causes growth, then the natural reaction that will be produced is thankfulness. If you are a person that is struggling with bitterness, Maybe you're a believer and you're struggling with bitterness. Bitterness has taken root in your life. Then you need to ask, what part of Christ am I not understanding? What part of Christ am I not believing? And as you remind yourself of the truths found in Christ, you will naturally become more thankful. It will be a product of you being rooted, established, and grounded. So that's Paul's description of what it means to walk in Christ, to live this out. You let him root you, you let him grow you, and then you abound in thankfulness. And then he's going to contrast that. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So, the term see to it in the Greek, it's just blepo, that's one word, and it means to be on the lookout, to watch out, it, to watch out, be on guard for. So, if we're li- to live according to Christ, then in contrast, we should be on guard for those who might mitigate that command. We should be on guard for those who would like to put up barriers to you living out that faith. Paul will go on to explain the contrast that, watch out, that no one takes you captive. The term captive was used for prisoners of war. So watch out because there are people that want to make you a prisoner. They want to take you captive. And how do they do that? They do that by philosophy and empty deceit. Now the words "empty deceit and pho- uh, sorry empty and deceit" both modify philosophy. so philosophy is just the love of wisdom. that's all philosophy is. so throughout the proverbs, we are instructed to love wisdom, so loving wisdom is not bad. It's not like Paul is warning us just about loving wisdom. The problem is that people use empty and deceptive philosophy. So the problem isn't philosophy itself. It's this philosophy that is empty and deceptive. This wisdom cannot hold the weight of truth because it's empty. We see that playing out. People who have rejected Christ for empty and deceitful philosophies then begin to let all kinds of truth be corrupted because they no longer hold on to a truthful worldview or a truthful philosophy of the world. They no longer know what wisdom is. And so they no longer know what truth is. And beyond that, not being able to hold the weight of truth, this wisdom actively works Against truth. It actively undermines truth. So, next, Paul will explain why this philosophy is empty and deceitful. And it's because it is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So according to human tradition and elemental princi- or spirits of the world are so important to this argument that Paul will use these exact terms later on and we will discuss what they mean next week. So if you want to know what those mean, come next week. For now we know that these two aspects of empty and deceitful philosophy are empty and deceitful because they're not according to Christ. So he contrasts these the, these human traditions, and elemental spirits of the world with Christ. And these two are not according to Christ. That's why they're empty. That's why they're full of deceit. That is the contrast Paul is making. It's either based on Christ, or it is empty and deceitful. Those other philosophies are against Christ, so they cannot be the basis for our walk in life. And then Paul explains why Christ is the basis for true philosophy. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So this term for means because. So the reason why these philosophies are empty and deceitful is because they're not in Christ. And Christ is the basis of truth because the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ isn't just the image or likeness of God, but is actual divine. He is deity. It's so important that we understand that. In fact, this term deity is only found here, just like Christ Jesus the Lord is only found here in the Pauline epistles. This term deity is only found here in the Pauline epistles, and it means the God, the ruler of all. There can be no doubt. So Paul is laying out this argument that Christ isn't just the image or the likeness, but his actual deity himself. The creator of all things. The one who made physical laws and moral laws. The one in whom all things exist. He's kind of Summarizing all of chapter one right here in this title. So, anything that goes against him, because he is the creator of all things, because all things exist in him, and if he for some reason ever ceased to exist, you would cease to exist, all things would cease to exist. Because of that, anything that goes against him is empty and deceitful. Verse 10 and 11 then give us three effects of this fullness of deity in Christ. The first one is found in in verse 10. And you have been filled in him. Now this term filled means to be overflowing in capacity. Overflowing in capacity. It's not half full. It's not a quarter full. It's not like 99.9%. It means overflowing. When I think about this, I think about the beach last week. And Harper, our youngest, she's three years old. She has a bucket that she wanted to play with the sand in. And she wanted me to fill this bucket up. So at first I started taking, you know, scoops and putting the scoops of sand in there. And that wasn't quite enough. And so eventually, I mean, we've got a huge thing of sand, a beach that, you, you know, you couldn't see the end to the left and you couldn't see the end to the right. It's all sand. And so I just take this bucket and I just scoop it up. And so now the sand is overflowing, but she doesn't want that much sand. She wants even more sand. So I pat it down as good as I could, and then I start taking handfuls and just piling it on top. And what happens is it starts rolling over the side, and pretty soon it starts building up the sides. And almost, you can't even tell there's a bucket there anymore. It's just sand. That's the idea of this filling. It's not part. It's not halfway. It is overflowing. You have been filled. We are overflowing with everything we need to live this life. You are not lacking a single thing. God has filled you. He has equipped you with all you need to live this life. So let's go back to our survival analogy. You have a backpack. That backpack is overflowing. It's not even that God gave you advice on what to fill that backpack with. It is that he packed the backpack for you. And it is overflowing with everything you need to survive in the wilderness. But many Christians who sincerely love God don't live out what they have been called to in Christ because they don't even realize or they don't even understand that their backpack is full. Let alone do they even understand that they have a backpack that has been filled by Christ. So they are searching for their gear. They are searching for the backpack itself. And yet, They are practically swimming in the sand that God has filled for them. It's not a try-harder religion. It's a recognize what God has already done for you. And as you do that, you mature, you grow, you recognize that your backpack has been filled, and you recognize how to use it. So the second effect of this filling is that he is the head of all rule and authority. So the second effect of Christ being deity is that he is the head and rule of all authority. So let's say you've been filled by the one who is over all that knows exactly what you need to walk and to live with God. That your backpack has been filled by the one who Who has authority over all? And then along comes other people who try to convince you that you actually haven't been filled. In fact, in order to be filled, you need to add more. So they begin to convince you to add all this other stuff. But when you get into the wilderness, You pull out all of this other stuff and you find that it's empty. Every single package that they gave you had nothing in it because it had no value. Because it was empty and deceitful, Christ is the one who has filled you. There is no other way to be filled because he is the one who has all authority. The third effect, it's found in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So, this is an Old Testament reference. In order to understand it, we kind of have to go back and, and talk through a little bit. Circumcision was a symbol of God's covenant with Abraham. We find that in, in uh, Genesis 12. And the idea, the, the covenant was through Abraham's line, the Messiah would come. So through the seed of Abraham, God would bless the world through this Messiah that would redeem the whole world from our sin and our rebellion. Now, one of the reasons why circumcision was used is because it was a reminder, a constant reminder that the seed would come because God has unilaterally, meaning that he was going to be the one that did it, promised Abraham. So it wasn't going to be dependent upon Abraham. It wasn't going to be dependent upon Abraham's ancestors. God was going to make this happen. And that is the significance of circumcision. It was a reminder for every Hebrew man that God was going to redeem humanity through them, regardless of what they did. But what happened throughout the history of Israel, is you would find these people and groups of people and leaders sometimes who would begin to harden their heart against God. They would begin to rebel against God and actively work against God, and yet they would say at the end of the day, but I'm circumcised, so God owes me. And they would start flipping this symbol upside down. Instead of the symbol being this reminder that God was going to redeem the world through them, it became this symbol to them that God owed them. And so they had these hard hearts. And so the prophets, and in particular Ezekiel, started referencing this idea of being circumcised in heart. Great, you're circumcised in the flesh, but you've totally lost sight of what that means. So that's this reference here. So throughout the Old Testament, we see a reference to having an uncircumcised heart, and the correction is to have a circumcised heart, a heart that is in line with God. So Paul is saying that God has given us this circumcision, and what is it? You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, if the circumcision was a symbol that one day God would redeem all of humanity through the seed of Abraham, then when Christ the Messiah, who is Lord over all, who is going to do the redeeming, when he shows up on the scene, there is no longer a need for this symbol. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that circumcision. And so the Israelites no longer needed to be circumcised. Now, this is important because part of the heresy that crept in was these Jews that were kind of mystic, and they would come in and they say, great, Jesus is great, we're so glad you accepted Jesus. But if you truly want to experience God, if you truly want to have this emotional connection with God, You've got to get circumcised. And what Paul is saying here is that's not true. That circumcision does nothing for you. The true circumcision can only be done by Christ. And it is the separating or the putting off of the body of the flesh. Now this idea of flesh here is both legalism and fleshly desire. So the circumcision we have experienced is not a physical symbol of God's covenant with Abraham, but a spiritual one, where God, through Christ, has separated us from our flesh. We no longer have to be slaves to our flesh. We no longer have to let our flesh be the ones that call the shots. We have been separated from the flesh. The rest of this section, 12 through 15, will explain this idea in more detail, starting in verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, once again, in order to understand this, we kind of have to understand uh, baptism. The word baptism is what is called a transliteration from the Greek. That simply means that the translators who translated Greek to English took the Greek word and made it an English word. So the problem is, when the English Bible was being translated, the mode of baptism was sprinkling. Then they came to this word, baptism. And baptism means to immerse. In fact, it was originally used for pickles. And so they would immerse the pickle in vinegar, and when they would pull it back out, or sorry, I shouldn't say pickle, when they would immerse the cucumber in vinegar, they would pull it back out, and it would now be a pickle. It would be a totally new food, right? And that's the idea of this baptism. You would get immersed, you would pull it back out, and you would be a a new creation. So the problem came when the sprinklers came to the word baptism, which meant immerse, and they thought, well, great. We can either admit that we have been uh, doing baptism wrong, or we can just transliterate this word. They chose to do the latter. They just transliterated. They didn't want to admit that they'd been sprinkling when they should be immersing, so they just started to transliterate the word. So anytime you read the word baptism, you could also kind of read it as immerse. So the point is, we have been immersed in Christ. And that immersion has changed who we are. We have been rooted, and we are built, up in Christ, no longer controlled by our flesh. And though we practice physical baptism as a symbol, what Paul is talking about here, which is connected to the non-physical circumcision, is a spiritual baptism, a spiritual immersion where we are immersed in Christ, we are rooted in Christ, we are filled with Christ, and we will never be the same the flesh no longer has control over us we are new creations paul explains the newness in chapters or sorry in verses 13 through 15 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh god made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. And this is the gospel, right? We were dead. We were without ability. We were stuck in our sins. Missing Sin simply means missing the mark. And we were st- stuck in our sins and our trespasses. Trespasses are rebellion against God. So every single one of us has missed the mark at some point. You have failed to meet God's holy standard at some point. And beyond that, every single one of us has rebelled against God. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God. I want to do this my way. And because of that, every single one of us have a debt that needs to be paid. Because God is a holy God and a just God. He doesn't let that fly. And so he came and he paid the price for us. He died on the cross in our place. And when he did that, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He has offered forgiveness to everyone. He has paid the price for everyone. And all you have to do to be alive together with your creator is put your faith and trust in Christ and his work on the cross. There's not more that you have to do. It's not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's not Jesus plus read your Bible every day. The second you put your faith and trust in Christ, He took you from being dead in your trespasses and sins. He took you from being controlled by your flesh. He took you from being unholy. And He made you a saint. He called you holy and righteous and just. He made you pure and washed away all your sins. And there's nothing more you can do to make yourself more righteous. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself more holy. There is no Jesus plus extra. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. That is what Paul is getting at here. And so he has forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So when we sinned, when we rebelled, there was a record of debt that was waged against us. We had a ledger, and we were in the red. And what did Christ do? He canceled that debt. And the demand of that debt was our own debt so along with canceling the debt he canceled the legal demands and the way he did it was saying it aside by nailing it to the cross he paid the price so that we wouldn't have to and when he did this he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame all those who try to go against he put to shame. All those that say Jesus is great, but you need more, he triumphed over their legalistic rules. He triumphed over their formulas to be more than without Christ. He triumphed, over all that that people try to put extra on you that say, in order to be more, in order to be a better Christian, in order to be more holy, in order to be more righteous, in order to have a better relationship with God, here's a whole list of things you need to do. He triumphed over them. He put them to shame. So you're living your life walking in Christ. He has given you a backpack full of everything, overflowing with everything you need in order to live out your Christian faith. But everywhere you turn, there will be people that will try to tell you you need to take grace out. You need to take these things out that God has given you and replace them with their own legalistic rules. Jesus is fully God. He has reconciled you to himself. Who are you going to listen to? The expert or the legalist? Dear Lord, even to this day, we still don't fully understand how much you have given us. It seems that the more we dig into that backpack, the more we find, the deeper we go. And the deeper we go, the more we realize that we really don't understand all that you've given us. But for what we do understand, we thank you. We thank you that we don't have to earn it because we would fail over and over and over again. We would miss up. We would sin. We would shake our fist at you. And yet you have rooted us in you. You are building us up. And you are the one who is maturing us in the position you have placed us in. And we thank you. Let our natural reaction be a heart of gratitude towards you for all the blessings that you have given us. In your name we pray.